and welcome to episode 1094 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. Are we supposed to do this again? I forget. <laughs> we, we only do live shows now, yeah, so this right? is uh, kind of disconcerting. I don't know how to do this without the excitement of a studio audience. I need to start bringing in listeners to sit in my office while I record the podcast and clap and laugh and boo and stuff and we should just get Fernando Perez probably to just do the podcast from now on because that's been a, a popular request since our most recent episode. Yeah, I'm not sure we even need to be on it. I think we can just kind of let him. Yeah. He can play characters, <laughs> I guess, if he needs to ask himself a question. But yeah, this is, yeah. as I think about it, now I'm recording from Hamden, Connecticut. Previous recording was done in Brooklyn, New York. Previous recording was done in Boston, Massachusetts. Previous to that was Portland, Oregon. So this is a, yeah. this is a national tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we haven't actually done an email show in quite a while now, so we have built up a backlog. We might do an extra episode later in the week and maybe get some more emails out, but I have recorded a bunch. Of course, we've also accumulated some banter over that time. I think I've probably forgotten a lot of banter I was going to banter about during that time, but that's probably okay. It's probably not that relevant anymore. So a few things that I did want to mention. First, when we were at Saber Seminar this past weekend, there was a talk inspired by a listener email show. So this was delivered by Andrew Dominiani, who writes for Fangraphs sometimes and was about the physics and timing of the bounce throw. This is a question we answered once, and I think we had maybe Alan Nathan weigh in. It was about whether an infielder can derive some benefit from bouncing a throw to first, whether it's in accuracy or speed. And Andrew looked at this and he used some very complicated physics modeling that I can't even pronounce without looking it up. So I I can provide the slides and the PDF that Andrew sent us if anyone is curious. Maybe I will post it in the Facebook group. In fact, I will. But his conclusion was that the bounce throw to first base is only faster than the air throw for slow speeds from long distances. So if you are far away, if you're like deep in the hole, that kind of thing, then it's better to bounce the throw than to throw a slow ball to first from a long distance. So I think he basically is suggesting that like it's better than lobbing the ball. If you're just kind of sailing it over there slowly, it would be better to keep it low. And that's, I think, the, the main benefit here. It's not so much about the bouncing, making the ball go faster, but about keeping the trajectory low and thus shaving some distance that the ball has to travel off the trajectory. So that was his conclusion. And so in the typical case, it would not be faster to do this, which I think is kind of intuitive, except for whatever comment initially prompted this discussion that we had because someone said that it wasn't intuitive. Yeah, I guess it's all about reducing the path length, which makes mm-hmm. all the sense in the world. But as far as, I guess, a realistic situation in which this would be of benefit? Uh, no, not, uh, not really. You're seldom in a situation where your options are either high lob or really hard throw that's low. Right. One implies that you are Chris Davis, and the other one implies that you are, I don't know, Aaron Hicks, who mm-hmm. incidentally I surprisingly saw last night at a uh, Trenton Thunder and Hartford huh. Yard Goats game. <laughs> 
Yeah. The Yard Goats uh, Stadium, I realize this is a conversation shift, but I had forgotten. It's only 308 feet down the right field line, and <laughs> to compensate for the uh, the narrow dimensions, they have a, a high wall. However, the physical wall is only about ordinary wall height, and then there is a net behind which there are seats, and then above the net, there's a yellow line. So a net is part of the wall, which is mm-hmm. of some interest. I have never seen that before. Yeah, that's cool. And I wanted to also do some banter about Miranda, who emailed us and said the Cubs commentators were discussing recent trades and said, business is business and such is life. (laughs) And Miranda says, it's spreading. I just thought you should know. I don't know whether it's spreading or whether we're just realizing that people have been saying such is life in baseball all along, but we have had a few instances now. So I, I enjoy this. I think it should spread. So please continue to say, and such is life, people in baseball. Remains quarantined within the National League Central. However, we could <laughs> see it broach division lines. And I, I wonder, like you, it could be one of those things where you learn a new word and then you notice it everywhere. But I feel like I, I honestly haven't seen I don't know. Broadcasters talk about broadcaster stuff. I don't know what their usual words are, but the the such as life in print, I definitely feel like I've never seen that before. I I feel like I would either one of us would have noticed that before. I think in a player quote. So mm-hmm. it's possible players have always said this, but only now are writers thinking this is printable. This will go in my quote section of the article, as opposed to I'm not going to transcribe this. So <laughs> right. It could be it could be a, a writer thing instead. But I will I will say I'm 95 percent certain this is newly in print. Mm-hmm. All right. A follow up from Ryan. This is very helpful. He says, I was listening to your podcast and had my curiosity piqued by your comment about Adrian Beltre and the best non-All-Star seasons. So I took the initiative to go ahead and give you an answer. Thank you, Ryan. I went ahead and used Fangraph's War as our ranking stat, and sure enough, with 9.7 War, 2004 Adrian Beltre was the best non-All-Star season in the history of the Summer Classic. I've attached the file, but I took the liberty of giving you my top 10 rankings below. So Adrian Beltre, 2004, 9.7 War, narrowly beating out Ron Santo. 1967, he had 9.5 war. Then you've got 1944, Snuffy Sternweiss with 9 war. Yep. 2004, J.D. Drew, 8.6. 1989, Ricky Henderson, 8.4. 2004, Jim Edmonds, 8.3. 1995, John Valentin, 8.2. 1964, Dick Allen, 8.2. 1962, Frank Robinson, 8.2. And 1947, Ralph Kiner, 8.2. Note that I did not split it by first half war, which may be a better gauge of all-star snubs. If some dude sucks it up in the first half, you can't blame all-star voters there because I had neither the knowledge nor the drive to do so. That is uh, understandable, (laughs) right? If you rank the players by another stat, like WRC+, the top 10 looks as followed, and this is among qualified players. So 2002 Jim Tomei, 189 WRC+, not an all-star. 1938 Johnny Mize, 179. 1991 Frank Thomas, 179. 1958 Rocky Colavito, 179. Then you get Travis Hafner, 2006, at 176. Boog Powell, also 176 in 1964. Harmon Killebrew, 176 in 1964. Then you get 1994 Kevin Mitchell at 175, 1992 Frank Thomas at 175, and finally 2002 Brian Giles at 174. And Ryan writes, Adrian Beltre falls to 51. 
one in this offense-only ranking. If you rank by defensive war, Beltre is 61st, but he had the best combination of offense and defense of any non-All-Star since the implementation of the game in 1933. One final point, the worst All-Star of all time was the 1953 selection of St. Louis Browns shortstop Billy Hunter. Hunter was a rookie in 1953 who slashed 219, 253, 239. For a lofty WRC plus of 29, he did have a better first half than second with a 226, 254, 274 slash line, but most would consider that less than all-star worthy regardless. By the end of the season, in 604 plate appearances, he had 20 extra base hits and one home run. He also only walked 4% of the time and also only stole three bases. He was a decent defender as he had plus 9.4 defensive runs above average, but even that couldn't save him from his negative 2.3 war. All-star Billy Hunter, negative 2.3 war. I wonder what the story was there. He must have had some some good off-the-field story or been like a spark plug or, or something like that. Well, he was a rookie. It was his first ever year in the major leagues, which maybe, yeah. I guess, makes that more surprising. He was never yeah. an all-star again. He played six years in the majors. That was his worst offensive season and his only all-star appearance. That season, he was worth, at least according to this baseball reference page, negative 0.5 wins above replacement for his career, negative 1.9 that year, uh, that rookie year. He was is listed at having been worth 2.9 defensive war, implying he was about 29 or 30 runs better than average in the field, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, uh, incredibly good. However, he was nearly that much below average or replacement, whatever it is, by offense. And so he wound up being a non-helpful player, as already discussed by his being identified as the worst all-star of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess, uh, let's see, is he dead? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not listed as dead. Yeah, I was wondering about that. We could... Uh could call Billy Hunter and say, why were you an all-star? You were so bad. <laughs> I guess, yeah, maybe I, it's hard enough to ask a current player, why are you bad? And uh, <laughs> I wonder if it would be better or worse to talk to an 89-year-old man about his horrible rookie year that was nevertheless <laughs> rewarded with yeah, yeah, with one of the great honors uh, that baseball can bestow. Yeah, this, uh, he might be tough to find with a name like Billy Hunter. That is uh, a little difficult. Born in Punxsutawney, uh, yeah. high school, Indiana, looking like... Wait, Indiana, Pennsylvania? What the hell? <laughs> That's confusing. He, uh, in the winter of 1952, I can say this much. In the winter of 1952, Billy Hunter played for the Santurce Crabbers, a Puerto Rican team that mm-hmm. later on near podcast guest Dickie Thawne has recently owned and uh, has played for before. So we got a near effectively wild Santurce Crabbers connection going on here. Uh-huh. Billy Hunter, Dickie Thawne. <laughs> Let's see. We've got a Sabre bio for Billy Hunter. Does it say anything about how he was an all-star? So he was the 1952 Texas League MVP, Mm -hmm. which made him a coveted player, apparently. And Bill Veck pried him away from the Dodgers in exchange for $95,000 plus three players, making him the highest-priced rookie in team history. Wow. And he found out about the trade while reading the Daily News in Puerto Rico, <laughs> as you mentioned, where he was playing winter ball. And then he signed for $6,000. The league minimum salary was 5000 According to Hunter, Vec apologized for only being able to pay me $6,000. Bill, we're bankrupt, but I'll take care of you next year. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Browns moved and Hunter did not get his raise. So let's see what happened here. Okay, so this maybe explains what was happening here. 
Well, it says, despite his low batting average at the end of the season, Hunter was hitting well enough at the All-Star break to make the American League All-Star team representing the Browns along with Satchel Paige. He didn't get to bat in the game, but he pinch ran for Mickey Mantle. I was in the top 10 in hitting at the end of June, Hunter later said. I always joke that I must not have gotten another hit the rest of the year because I ended up at 219, which also turned out to be his career batting average. So I guess that was it, that he was just kind of hot at the beginning of the season, batting average wise, at least. And maybe he had a lot of attention on him because he was this coveted player and Texas League MVP and there was a bidding war for him. So maybe there was some hype surrounding him and he had an empty batting average for a bit at the beginning of the season. And that was enough to do it. And he was a a decent defender, too. So I guess that'll get you an all-star selection. So he was sort of, I guess, Ray Ordonez-y. Remember how he was hyped and he never hit or did anything? Kind of uh-huh. Jose yep. Iglesias as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm having trouble pulling up some numbers from that year to see what his shortstop competition was, but I guess, I don't know, better to just leave it as a partial mystery. A long coaching and managing career after he retired, he was a contender for the Orioles job when Earl Weaver was hired to manage, and Hunter was disappointed about that, but Weaver said, I really think I need him, so Hunter stayed on for nine years under Weaver, and so it was Hunter who would take over when Earl Weaver was ejected from Orioles games, which would happen pretty often. He even managed the Orioles in the fourth game of the 1969 World Series because Weaver became the first manager in 34 years to be ejected from a World Series game. And this I like. He became the manager of the Rangers later on, but then... While he was still an Orioles coach, in 1974, Hunter displayed a new gimmick. When an Oriole hit a home run, Billy would unbutton his shirt and display his t-shirt to the crowd. There was only one word on the shirt. Zap. (laughs) The New York Daily News called the gimmick Bush. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, there are too many Billy Hunters for me to track him down right now, but he is out there some somewhere, 89 years young, and uh, perhaps we will be able to find him. If anyone knows Billy Hunter, drop us a line. The, let's say there would be a very modest sense of urgency with this one. <laughs> yeah. And going back to how that began, Adrian Beltre, I will point out that uh, looking at the 2004 All-Star game, Scott Rowland was the National League starter at third base. He had an amazing 2004 season, so, you know, it kind of makes some sense that Beltre didn't get the nod there. However, among the other National League All-Stars, just as I read down this lineup, there was Jack Wilson. Jack Wilson was an All-Star in this mm-hmm. season. Uh, Mike Lowell made it as a third baseman representing the 2004 Florida Marlins. However, that year, Miguel Cabrera, also an All-Star, so it's not like Lowell was the necessary team representative. Lowell was far worse than Adrian Beltre. This was also a season in which Johnny Estrada made the All-Star game mm. and Mark Loretta and who could forget Danny Kolb? Danny Kolb, National <laughs> yeah. League All-Star in 2004. I'm going into this blind, and his season ERA was, oh, it was fine. Good for Danny Kolb. This season ERA, <laughs> the next season, not so fine. Mm-hmm. All right. A submission in the strange field category. Nope. Nope. Stopping you nope. right there, because now oh. we got to point them out. 2003, uh-huh. Danny Kolb, 8.5 strikeouts per nine innings. That's good. That's good for yeah. 2003, Danny Kolb. Not his yeah. All-Star season. 2004, Danny Kolb. I will remind you, 2003 Danny Kolb, 8.5 strikeouts per nine innings. 2004 Danny Kolb, all-star, 3.3 strikeouts per nine innings. Closer, 39 saves, (laughs) all-star. Unbelievable. What happened to Danny Kolb that year? ERA under three. I don't understand. 
Wow. Wild what, season. Good for him. What was his BABIP that year? Let's say low. I haven't <laughs> seen it. Let's say very low. Yeah. Uh, do you have a guess? I'll, I'll say 203. The answer is uh, 246. Hmm. Okay. Good for Danny Kolb. Yeah. I guess. A lot of grounders? Must have been. And yeah. uh, he was worse with men on base. Okay. Well, anyway, that's all we need to say about Danny Kolb. We can talk to him as a cold call in about 40 years. <laughs> Kolb call. All right. <laughs> a strange field submission from Jason Collette. I played college ball for a small team in Kansas, and we got to play at some funny little parks all over the Midwest. Many of them had one quirk or another. One of the most memorable was Duncan Field in Hastings, Nebraska. It was an old minor league stadium built in the early 1940s. What's remarkable about this field is that it has a brick wall around the perimeter. Not just a smooth brick wall, but there were little brick posts that stuck out from the wall. So in addition to the dangers inherent with running full speed into a brick wall, there was the fun possibility of balls hit off the wall taking terribly unpredictable caroms. To further the danger the poor outfielders faced, there were two massive four-post steel light towers in play in right center and left center. These were at a minimum 10 feet in width, and to top it all off, they decided a flagpole in dead center with a small stone or brick base that stuck up a foot or two off the ground would be another great update. Sadly, it appears the city decided to renovate the field a few years back, and most of the pictures available online are to celebrate the more modern appearance. Below are links to the few pictures I could locate online from before the renovation. Attached is a picture one of my teammates provided when I was trying to recollect if there was, in fact, a flagpole. Since none of these web links showed it, I will post those in the Facebook group. I have a whole album of strange-looking ballparks going now. And Jason also says another slightly less crazy but still memorable stadium was in Cocoa Beach, Florida. It was a massive complex that hosted a tournament we played in. At the time, one of the fields was a perfect square. I think it was a normal 330 feet down each of the lines, but since it was a square, center field was deep. It was one of the hardest places for the center fielder to figure out where to position himself. Every center fielder the whole tournament struggled with it because he was so far from the fence. So thank you, Jason. I like these. Let's see. We've got here from Brian, who in the Facebook group, this is a a nice genre of listener email where they come up with a question and then do all the research themselves (laughs) and then send us the result. I like this. So uh, this is from Mike. Actually, it was prompted by a question from Brian in the Facebook group who wondered which broadcasts include OPS in their stat line. Mm -hmm. And it motivated Mike to look at all broadcasts and their stat lines, which must have taken some time. Here's what he found. He sent a complete list of all the stats in each broadcast, which I will post for people who are interested. And he says he included one network for each team, except the three networks for the Cubs and two for the White Sox. And he can do further research if there are any networks he missed but basically he found that every single network has batting average home runs and rbi as you would expect and then he also looked at ones that included on base percentage and slugging and ops and he found that eight teams show ops it's the brewers cardinals diamondbacks marlins pirates red sox tigers and twins and then there are seven teams that show the full slash line of average obp slug that's the a's blue jays cubs all three channels giants Mets, Phillies, and both White Sox channels. And then there are 
Only seven teams that show only average home runs and RBI. The Astros, surprisingly, Hmm. the Braves, the Dodgers, the Mariners, the Nationals, the Orioles, and the Rockies. So I will post this if you are interested. There seems to be no team that shows all five of those things because screen real estate is at a premium, I guess. And I appreciate the research because we get that question often about what stats we would show on the broadcast, that kind of thing, which is not the same as this, but still helpful to know what stats are currently shown on the broadcast. So thanks for the legwork, Mike, and the question, Brian. Do you know who makes those decisions for a network? Like I know that I even seven, eight, nine years ago watching Mariners games, they would talk about things like UZR sometimes and defensive yeah. runs saved, especially now, of course, when you have Jerry Depoto, who's putting together an athletic defensive outfield, he wants people to know that there are things that they do that aren't just hit. So of course, they talk about those other numbers. So it makes me think that maybe it's just the network that's independently making those decisions when a batter comes up to hit because like you said it's kind of weird to see the Astros on that list as well because Mm -hmm. well I don't really need to explain the because so yeah weird and it would be interesting to know who's deciding yeah a lot of these teams have more advanced stats like on the scoreboard even at this Mm -hmm. point so yeah I I would assume it's just a, a producer but obviously, this doesn't mean that those networks don't discuss other stats. They do. Right. This is just the, the standard line that they show at the beginning of a uh, plate appearance. What was the emailer's name? Mike. Mike. Okay. So, yeah, I think the, the truer reflection of at least what the team wants would be what's on the scoreboard. So now you have a new mm-hmm. project, Mike, and uh, you are <laughs> about to take a very long trip. <laughs> yeah. All right. And one final thing. This is from Dan Heron. This was uh, a while ago, but I have uh, not had a chance to bring it up yet. So Dan was listening to our Obscure Rules discussion, and he says he enjoyed the one about the outfielder bobbling the ball on purpose, and it made him think of this one. A teammate of his in A-ball, or I'll read this from his perspective, a teammate of mine in A-ball once lost a no-hitter on runner's interference on a seemingly routine ground ball. I never knew that the batter was awarded a hit. Anyway, I always wondered this while playing. First and third, one out with the tying run on third. A slow batter, say Kendris Morales, hits a routine ground ball to second, a double play ball. The runner on first acts like he's trying to jump out of the way, but the ball hits him. You avoid the double play if you seemingly were trying to get out of the way right, and your team gets one more shot to tie the game. Also, I always wondered, if I was a first base coach, how much the hitter would appreciate if he hit a grounder to first and I let it hit me. He gets a hit, right? Uh, And he also, he sent along the documentation of when this happened to his teammate. It was Thursday, May 2nd, 2002. This is reading from MinorLeagueBaseball.com. A scoring technicality robbed Peoria Chiefs left-hander Tyler Johnson of a no-hit chance in a 9-0 victory against the Michigan Battlecats. With a no-hitter through seven innings, Johnson walked leadoff hitter Kerry Hodges to start the eighth, retired the next two batters on flyouts, and induced a ground ball off the bat of Brooks Conrad. The batted ball struck Hodges as he headed towards second. Hodges was called out on the play for interference, the third out of the inning, but by rule, Conrad was credited with a single. So I asked a friend who is an official scorer and helps out with these questions sometimes on the show, Darren. He says he's right. If a batted ball hits a runner in fair territory, the runner is out and the batter is credited with a base hit. I've seen players do this also to stay out of double plays. He says it can't be intentional that this ruling is made. He thinks Adrian Beltre did it as a Mariner, but he wasn't able to find that for sure. (laughs) But 
In section 6.01a and note 7, if he in the umpire's judgment willingly and intentionally interferes, both the runner and batter can be called out. And then there's also something in section 9.05 where it talks about the value of base hits. And Heron says that uh, that was interesting, but he thinks a runner could make it look like he's trying to get out of the way. So he thinks there is a potential loophole to exploit there. Why on earth would that count as a hit? (laughs) <laughs> Why? Because when when you have catcher's interference, it doesn't count as anything, right? It's not in a bat. It's not a plate appearance. It's not. It's, that's why Jacoby Ellsbury only ends up with 119 plate appearances a season because the other 573 are catcher's interferences. So why 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 a hit? Why not nothing? Why not yeah. just? To, <laughs> I get that in a bat took place, but why right. why not just treat it as if the runner was caught stealing, where you don't get credit for anything in that event? So that just seems like a weird. That's a, that's a bizarre quirk. <laughs> yeah, I don't approve of that. That sucks for Tyler Johnson. <laughs> yeah, everything in the rule book probably has some obscure origin for it. Some some time when it should have been a hit. I mean, I guess a lot of the times it would be a hit, like it would be through the right. hole or something. So. Maybe it was deemed more fair. Maybe there was a specific play that inspired it. I don't know. Maybe there's some case we're not thinking of immediately. But The runner is always in front of the defender. So it's not as if the ball hits the runner and then there's nothing beyond them and it's just outfield grass. Mm-hmm. You can, I don't think you should you shouldn't be able to take this if this happened in the major leagues even if Tyler Johnson had this happen to him in the major leagues and I don't think I don't recall anyone really cared that much about Tyler Johnson I'm sure his parents did but if this happened and to ruin a major league no hitter which to my knowledge it never has that would be that would be patently absurd that, <laughs> I have never heard of this rule I'm glad that it was brought to our attention that is stupid that is a stupid rule current <laughs> current possibility for stupidest rule on the books i understand there are stupid rules this is the dumbest one yeah albert Pujols. this is now transitioning from <laughs> the the banter portion of the podcast although there are a bunch of emails in there too so robert says if the angels and Pujols agreed he would play for them until he died how long would it take for him to reach zero career war with negative war this season he has fallen under 100 career war so that's robert's question jamal's question which is related i think there's a strong case to be made that the Angels would be justified in straight up releasing Pujols and eating the money owed to him. He's already 37, has a 650 OPS, cannot play position, and cannot run at all. And to make matters worse, he's been batting third or clean up all year, although he has been clutch, right? As uh, you wrote, and as the Mariners have pointed out, not that that's a repeatable skill, but it has hurt the Angels less than one would expect because he has had good timing this year. But Jamal continues, he's going to end up being a negative two war player this year, and he's still owed $114 million over the next four years. <laughs> oh. <laughs> With just a league average hitter at DH this year, the Angels could be four to five wins better. Eh, well, I don't know about that. But getting the negative two pull holes is worth plus whatever a league average hitter can give you. The contract is going down as one of the worst ever. Should the Angels just bite the bullet and DFA him? Can't the Angels just give him the Bonilla deal and give him payments once a year for like the next 30 years? Even if the Angels manage to sneak into the wild card game this year, there's no way you can play him, right? If not, after this year at what point do the angels pull the trigger okay well let's see i'm going back to an article in from the la times in 2015 this was written by mike d giovanna and this was written about pujols who says that let's see his daughter sophia i'll just i'll just read here pujols who arrived at spring training camp sunday said his nine-year-old daughter sophia an elite level gymnast could force him from the game if she achieves her goal of competing in the olympics pujols said sophia is shooting for the 2020 tokyo games even though current olympic gymnastic rules require girls to be 16 and sophia would be 14 that seems like there's nothing to be done here but i'll just continue anyway quote 
That might have to be the year I retire, Pujol said. You can put that in the paper because I don't want to miss it. Either that or they'll have to put me on the disabled list for two weeks. Okay, well, that seems like that's a much more reasonable option. So I think Pujols probably would not walk away from however much money he would have left <laughs> yeah. in 2020. I remember it was a pretty common question to get in chats over the winter and even over the previous winter if Albert Pujols would get to 100 career war, at least according to Fangraphs. I don't know if he's there by baseball reference. And I, mm-hmm. I always figured, well, no, I don't think it's going to happen. He's in his later 30s and he's still about nine war away. And no matter how good he's been as a hitter in recent years, this just doesn't seem reasonable. Well, now the task has gotten all the much more difficult because he's gotten nearly a year older and he's moved a win and a half further away from the 100 war threshold. As far as the question about if the Angels kept playing him until he was dead, well, I think there would be some other questions. However, uh, is he playing? Is he playing regularly? Is he just always in the starting lineup? He would be as a DH, I guess. I don't know the value of the worst possible <laughs> yeah. DH you could have. I think it stands to reason his decline would accelerate over time. So wait, he would need to lose about 90 wins from now. Yes. He's at 99.6 on baseball reference and that's that's with negative 1.6 this year. So he was over 100. So that's a bummer. That's like when a guy sets the all-time rushing record and then loses yards on the next handoff. You got to do it again, (laughs) man. Enjoy your brain. So Pujols, (laughs) let's say just using fan graphs where he's got to lose 90 wins. I'm not going to be able to do this math that quickly in my head. Figure he's going to lose another, I don't know, half win this year, whatever. It's a negligible. Then uh, maybe he'd lose another win or two next year. And then I don't know how much he would start to add, but you figure by the time he's he's 50, then at that point he's, oh my goodness, he, that'd be so bad. His base running value wouldn't be terrible because he'd never be on <laughs> base anymore. But I would need to calculate the worst possible war you could have as a regular DH. By this point, I would imagine that maybe the park would start to play a little differently because I imagine that the Angels fans would torch and destroy the one that's currently standing if this continued to happen. But at the same time, I guess wins above replacement <laughs> factors in park effects. So that wouldn't really be much of a big deal. Yeah, he. Uh, how long? Let's see. 37 now. 90 wins. 90 wins to lose. I don't think he'd get there by 50. I think he'd have a chance because he'd be so bad. Uh, I think that, I don't know, maybe maybe if he was, uh, he can mm-hmm. still hit the ball. You know, he's not striking out that much. He still has some pop. He just can't move. He can't move is the problem. So if he just went all late career Frank Thomas and hit everything in the air, then he could maybe kind of float around. I know he's not as good as Barry Bonds, but, you know, he used to be kind of close and Bonds and still hit dingers, at least against batting practice pitching. So, ah, goodness, 55 maybe? Maybe by 55 it could be Sooner, I don't know. We've never seen a player that bad play regularly, but I'll put it between 15 and 55. He would, uh, he no. would when's art membership start? That's not the 60s, right? Yeah, no, he'd uh, he'd be back to zero before. <laughs> Uh, before right. his yeah. in. Actually, you can uh, you can join at fifty, but I think the discounts start at fifty-five. So so maybe <laughs> he he would do it by then. Yeah. I, how long do you think he will actually go? I mean, he's he's signed for four more years. He is really really bad this year if you factor out the timing and the clutchness. So if that doesn't repeat. Next year, then he will just be bad. He has a 74 OPS plus right now. He is a DH. That is very bad. So uh, if he gets worse from there, I mean, what's the largest contract ever eaten? Like aside from I feel like this injury is recent, cases, right? do we know? Like there was a, there was, I mean, Sandoval maybe that was a big one, but. 
I doubt there's ever been one as big as like cutting four years of Pujols now, right? But I mean, you could make an argument that it's the the right thing to do. Like if and maybe he has a bounce back in him a little bit, but it's hard to imagine him being a valuable player at, at this point, you know, like I don't know whether he is dealing with any physical stuff right now, but he is always dealing with physical stuff, and that's not likely to change as he gets older. Well, I can tell you there's another one that might be creeping up on us, too, because let's see, this season, by Fangrass, Miguel Cabrera has been an average hitter, and he's at 0.5 war. He is 34 years old, and if I just do a little control F, Miguel Cabrera, mm-hmm. it is a, it's 2017 now, he is in the second season of an eight-year, $248 million contract. Now, there are 2024 and 2025. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. well, thankfully, they're club options. Those are club options. So, good news, those options are guaranteed if he finishes in the top 10 of the previous year's MVP vote. I don't think that that's going to be very likely. So, taking this back to Pujols, talking to Dave Cameron about this not too long ago, uh, we weren't able to come up with a real known answer, of course, because neither one of us is Albert Pujols, but Dave was of the mind that there's no way Pujols would ever walk away from the money he has uh, left on his contract because it's it would be basically unprecedented for non-health reasons. Now, I guess you could argue that a physical decline is a health reason, but in any case, there's a, mo- a lot of money left that Pujols has. I was more of the mind that maybe, maybe Pujols would be sufficiently prideful or self-aware or whatever character trait you would like to believe in. I was more of the mind that Pujols might consider walking away with money left on his contract. I know we saw what Gil Mesh walked away from, I think it was eight figures left on his deal that he just left on the table when he uh, when he left baseball and that was that was surprising but it did happen now it's hard to know i've never been in position to walk away from 25 or 30 million dollars i don't think i've ever been in position to walk away from 25 or 30 dollars so i don't know exactly how it would feel to be pools i would imagine that when this offseason rolls around he's going to identify things that maybe weren't working for him and he's going to believe that he can have a big bounce back season and we're going to see those articles written next february and march I'm sure Pedro Mora will do an excellent job of laying out Albert Pujols' mm-hmm. case of why he's going to have a better 2018 than 2017. And you know what? It's going to be believable. And it's going to yeah. be believable because he used to be has about as good as Barry Bonds. He was the best player or maybe the best hitter on the planet. And it's hard to believe that's all gone. And I don't know. He, he seems to have the capacity to think with greater perspective than your typical ball player. He seems like he's a pretty thoughtful individual where maybe that makes him more likely to retire early or maybe it makes him less likely to retire early because he could think of all of the good he could do with all of that money that he has signed as per his his rights. So the conclusion of all of this answer is I don't know what he's going to do, but this is a this is I think more or less unprecedented and then shortly after Pools' contract situation is resolved, we will have the Miguel Cabrera contract situation to deal with. Mhm. This is, yeah, it's going to be, I don't even want to say interesting to watch. I mean, it is. It's also kind of sad and depressing to watch, but we will be watching nonetheless. All right, let's do a stat segment. You want to do a stat segment? And we actually have a listener email that has inspired this stat segment. So let me read that. This is from... 
Kyle, who says, As a diehard Orioles fan, I know that the fan base can't stand the first inning by none other than Chris Tillman. Seems like he's guaranteed to give up two to three runs to start the game, but oddly enough, seems to be much better from the second inning on. Is there any statistical analysis to back this up? Who are the worst first inning starters of all time? The answer is yes. Yes, there is. <laughs> Firstly, I want to I wanna throw out two quick stat things that are not related to this. I will come back to first inning pitching, but firstly... You might remember that last year, Jacoby Ellsbury set the all-time record for reaching on catcher's interference. Uh, he mm-hmm. did it 12 times, which shattered the previous record by 50%. Previous record in this season was 8. So that was uh, that was fairly mind-blowing, and Ellsbury reached 12 times. Second place had 3. This season, Ellsbury is in second place. He's reached on 3 catcher's interference, but Josh Reddick has reached 7 times on catcher's interference. Josh Reddick trying to break the previous record so something is definitely weird and happening there keep an eye on that or don't nobody cares yesterday in the minor league game i went to a batter reached on catcher's interference i did not know that and i thought that the scoreboard was wrong declaring the number of outs for the remainder of the inning so i was very confused it is poorly signed uh, the only other thing i want to throw out before I address Chris Tillman and the Orioles is that at the All-Star break, Aaron Judge led Mike Trout by 2.3 Fangraphs wins above replacement. The margin now, Judge is still in first place among position players. He's at six wins above replacement. Mike Trout has closed to within 0.9 wins above replacement. He is less than one win away from Aaron Judge. It has been less than a month since the All-Star break happened. Trout has been Arguably the best player in baseball since the All-Star break. That would make sense because he is the best player in baseball. So he has risen to find his level to whatever extent people were concerned. He would uh, be rusty and take Mm -hmm. his time to get back. No, unless this is him being rusty and the world is about to end for reasons other than the reasons that are in the news. So addressing Chris Tillman and the Orioles, I will say two things and then I will say several more things. Uh, One, (laughs) Tillman has indeed been much better after the first inning this season. He has started 15 games. His first inning ERA is 11.40. That is a terrible first inning ERA. The bad news is that after the first inning, he's still been terrible. His ERA after the first inning is 7.14, which as far as I know would probably still be the worst or one of the worst ERAs in baseball for a starting pitcher. But in any case, as usual, when somebody asks us about something small, why not go big? So I now have a bunch of first inning pitching stats that I can I can run through. Looking for starting pitchers, I was using the Baseball Reference Play Index, former sponsor of this very podcast. I, I searched, first of all, for the worst individual seasons of first inning pitching. I said a minimum of 15 starts. That felt like it was appropriate. Also, coincidentally, the number of starts Tillman has. And this season, uh, so far, I mentioned Chris Tillman has an 11.40 first inning ERA, that it would be the 29th worst on record. I don't know how far back these logs go. I am going to guess they only go back into the 70s, but still, that's a lot of time. If you were born in the 70s, you're older than you think that you are. And the second worst, the uh, the second worst first inning ERA belongs to 2000 Paul Bird at 14.11. That's quite bad. However, first place or last place, depending on your perspective, 1996 Jim Bollinger. Jim Bollinger that year, he started 20 games. He threw 20 first innings and he allowed 35 earned runs for an area of 15.75. After the first inning, Bollinger's season ERA was 4.86, which was fine for the year 1996. <laughs> so Jim Bollinger had the uh, the worst first inning problem in a season, at least uh, that is on record here. I have six tabs open, so sorry, everyone. This is going to go for a while. 
to twist it around, the best first innings seasons of all time. Might not surprise you to learn that there have been several pitchers who have uh, ERAs of zero in the first inning. There, There's Roger Clemens in 1985, 15 starts, no earned runs. There's 2008 Charlie Morton, apparently, 15 starts, uh, no earned runs. There are nine pitchers who met my searched for criteria for this, and the, uh, the second most First innings started among them, Ron Guidry in 1981. He had 21 starts. But uh, I would say the leader and the clear leader, 1997 Pedro Martinez, who started 31 games and did not allow a first inning earned run. ERA of zero. I'm pretty sure that was his ERA for all subsequent innings. Pedro Martinez, greatest pitcher I've ever seen. Moving on, I looked at uh, career splits. So uh, this time I set a minimum of 50 career starts. So this is now going beyond first innings. Mm -hmm. The worst ever first inning pitcher, Scott Scudder. He's a pitcher I've never heard of. So here he is. First inning area of 9.85, over 64 starts. That's quite bad. Jose Silva, Todd Van Poppel, Mike Birkbeck. Mike Birkbeck. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's a name. That's a name somebody had. He was not good in the first inning. Maybe he thought about his name a lot. Uh, fifth place, Jim Bullinger shows up. He was just the winner of the previous category for individual seasons. He shows up here with the fifth worst first inning ERA. Now, moving to the uh, the more fun side, I can tell you the list of the best first inning pitchers ever is uh, not quite what I expected. Clayton Kershaw is there in eighth place with a first inning ERA of 2.47. That's pretty good. And Pedro Martinez is all the way down in 150th place mm-hmm. at 3.63. Not exactly what I was expecting. Uh, Randy Johnson is in 59th place, a first inning ERA of 3.22. So I'm just going to read some names here. Fifth place, first inning ERA of 2.33, Dave Rigetti. Pretty good pitcher. All right. Fourth place, the late Anthony Young, 2.29. Third place, Zach McAllister for some reason, 2.22. Second place, Dick Woodson, 2.09. I'm going to do the thing. Ben, do you have a guess (laughs) for the best ever first inning ERA for a starting pitcher? Minimum 50 career starts. I will tell you that you can guess probably... 3,000 names, and you will not guess this particular name. Ubaldo Jimenez. No. I'll just... Why don't we stop this here? It's yeah. Aaron Laffey. Aaron Laffey sure. is the best ever first inning pitcher uh, in 68 career starts. He's thrown 68.1. What? Okay. something doesn't. Something's weird. Okay. 69 career games in the first inning. He must have relieved once in the first inning. That was a desperate situation. <laughs> Aaron Laffey has thrown 68.1 innings in what would have been the first inning. And he has an ERA in those innings of 1.98. So congratulations, Aaron Laffey. You are much worse after the first inning, historically. And just for some team perspective, the uh, the best team on record for throwing first innings, that's the 1974 Oakland Athletics. They had a team ERA of 1.67 in the first inning. That's uh, That's quite good. This season's leader is the Kansas City Royals at 3.21. They are tied for 102nd place. That is not a place that anybody has ever cared about. And the worst teams, the 2000 Texas Rangers in 162 games, allowed 142 earned runs in the first inning. That's good for a team ERA of 7.89, which is a half run worse than the teams tied for second place. Uh, at 7.39, that's the 1996 Colorado Rockies, who don't count, and the 1998 Detroit Tigers, who definitely do count. And this season's worst team, first inning pitching, the New York Mets. 
New York Mets this season tied for 13th, or I guess 12th worst here. They have a first inning ERA of 7.04 over 110 starts. So just as everyone expected coming into the season, the New York Mets would have a worse first inning ERA than the San Diego Padres, who were supposed to have maybe the worst starting pitching in the history of baseball. <laughs> and should we say, did you say that generally first inning ERAs are higher? I mean, just because you have the top of the lineup up and also there's some speculation that the pitchers need to adjust and get used to the mound and, and all that sort of thing. So I think even if you adjust for the quality of the hitters, there is still a tendency for more runs to be scored in that inning than most. So it's not bad to be worse in the first inning but it's bad to be chris tillman in the first inning <laughs> well let's see this year this year league splits the league average era is 4.34 and the league era in the first inning so 4.34 first inning era of 4.90 so indeed things are you're facing the top of the order and you're a starting pitcher so mm-hmm. yeah first inning eras yeah. tend to be up but not chris tillman or jim bullinger mm-hmm. up I mentioned the Padres were supposed to have the worst pitching of all time. Uh, as you probably remember, we talked a lot about the 2016 Cincinnati Reds, who had the first ever below replacement level pitching staff. This season, they're hanging at 1.4 plus 1.4, so that's good. Good for the Reds. However, their starting rotation is at 0.0. They have had, once again, a replacement level starting rotation. The Cincinnati Reds, everybody. <laughs> All right, question from Brian. While I was watching the Red Sox-Indians game, Dave O'Brien stated that the Indians have already put up a crooked number here in the first inning. Given that they had scored three runs, that seems premature to me. However, I also realized that I didn't have a good sense of what qualifies as a crooked number for one half inning. Five? Fewer? I also wasn't sure if there was any other meaning to crooked in this context other than implying that the balance of the game was tilted towards one side. Even that may be completely off and just one of those things I never thought about before now. So I believe that crooked number just refers to scoring multiple runs, really. I I think that's all it is. I don't think it has to change the balance of power in the game. I don't think it has to be a lot of runs. I don't know whether you disagree. I, I just pulled my Dixon baseball dictionary off the shelf and the entry for crooked number says any number greater than one and lower than 10 in reference to the lack of straight lines for numerals two through nine a high scoring game is one with crooked numbers a one nothing game is one in which neither team was able to post a crooked number the first use of this that they found was 1993 when tony la Russa was quoted as calling crooked numbers uh, in the 1993 world series by roger angel in a 1993 New Yorker piece. So that's my understanding of what it means. I don't know whether some people have higher standards for crooked numbers or not, but the point is that the numbers are crooked and that seems to be true for anything over one. So I think that's all it is, right? Yeah, I think this one there is not much disagreement out there. You can disagree about the significance of having a crooked number, I suppose, because there are a lot of numbers that are higher than one and below 10. There are uh, eight of them. (laughs) I guess would be the number of those, uh, eight being a crooked number. But yeah, everything I'm looking up agrees with the Dixon Baseball Dictionary. You look up the definition of crooked and it just says bent or twisted out of shape or out of place. I guess you could argue that an integer is never bent or twisted out of shape because it is its own shape. But mm-hmm. otherwise, that, that given how, yeah. uh, how it's intended, 
I think, yeah, this one is this one's pretty clear. Crooked number is just any number greater than one, less than ten. Yeah, you could also argue maybe about the crookedness of these numbers. Like, is three crooked? It's it's kind of uh, I don't know. Crooked seems like like an angular kind of description to me. Yeah. Whereas three is just a it's a bunch of swirls and circles and like a sideways W. It doesn't look all that crooked. But the point is that it's not a straight line, basically, and it's not a circle. Yeah. So there you have it. Eight's a good number. It's a it's a aesthetically appealing number. It's probably the most sexually attractive of of the of the integers between <laughs> zero and nine. I don't know, but it is a. I guess it would still count as crooked. It's not it's not twisted out of shape because again, as discussed, eight is its own shape. However, if you figure that the relation here is to a straight line, then uh, an eight is. Definitely still bent or twisted. It's uh, inarguably a twisted pretzel mm-hmm. of a of a number. Yeah. So still, still no argument. Eight. Okay. Pretty number. However, bent and or twisted. All right. Andrew says in a game against the A's, Brian Dozier went one for six with a home run and five strikeouts. Would you say Dozier had a good day at the plate? If someone did this for a whole season, homered once every six plate appearances, and struck out in all of the others, would they be a good offensive player? Okay, well, let's see. Uh, I'll just run some WOBA numbers here because that would be the easiest thing to do. So we went one for six with a home run and five strikeouts. That's what it was. Yep. Okay, so he would have a game WOBA of 330 approximately. The league average WOBA this season is 320. So Brian Dozier, leaving aside the fact that he has no productive outs, he also has no double plays. So congratulations, Brian Dozier. You have become ultra Joey Gallo and... uh yeah, I would say that he, because of the home run, he still had a fine game. I wouldn't say it was a good game. I think a good game, you need a good threshold is higher than just barely better than average. Mm-hmm. But if uh, if Brian Dozier hit 162 home runs over the course of a season and struck out whatever that times five is, then uh, that would count as obviously an <laughs> yeah. unbelievable season. But it would still be a productive season. And also the Twins would probably be thrilled because if Brian Dozier is averaging six plate appearances every game, then their offense has been just unbelievably good. So the Twins would be going into the playoffs as the probable World Series favorite. And there would be a lot of Brian Dozier think pieces and long form pieces that talk to Dozier about how probably he, there would be a, uh, a big disagreement between old-timey people and contemporary analysts about whether or not Brian Dozer should be the Twins' MVP. And the reality is that, actually, no, with these numbers, he still probably shouldn't be their MVP. That would be Miguel Sano, who, incidentally, might be doing the exact same thing in the same season. <laughs> yeah, right. But that is kind of illuminating because that sort of tells you why we have gone toward this all-or-nothing game because it actually pays off. I mean, if you hit one home run, it makes up for a lot of strikeouts. So that's kind of the cost-benefit analysis that teams and players are doing, and it is leading them more toward the home runs are good and strikeouts aren't so bad kind of camp. So not that anyone's going to start having this sort of season, although Joey Gallo is trying, but this is, you know, it, the math kind of works out. So that's how we've ended up or, or one of the reasons why we've ended up where we are. Over the weekend in Boston, Alan Nathan gave his presentation mm-hmm. that was addressing the ball and the home run spike and all that stuff. And and this is, you know, near and dear <laughs> to your heart, or maybe by this point, it's no longer near and dear to your heart. I'm not sure. But Nathan presented the argument that it's not all the ball. And, and this lends itself to the conversation about launch angle and the fly ball revolution and all that. But I think that you can talk about it a lot more generally. We've seen 
that that league-wide fly ball rates are not increasing, but I think that we're just seeing mm-hmm. that it's just more hard contact. And for the same reasons that you just described, I think that you just have players who are swinging harder or they're not doing the two-strike protection mechanism thing and players are just being selected for making firmer contact because as is, I think, pretty intuitive, home runs and strikeouts are related to one another. And so you just have players trying to hit more home runs because they realize, yeah, if you strike out, it's really not so bad. So I think when people are searching the league trends for more fly balls, I understand it. And there is a certain something there that that some players have attempted. But I, I think it's even more general than that. Players are just swinging really hard and they're doing it all the time now. Mm-hmm. Alan did find that there was a 15% increase, he thinks, from the beginning of 2015 to 2016 in home runs because of a decrease in drag on the ball, which could be related to seam height or the size of the ball. So he did find something that supports the idea that the ball has played a part in this, but he also theorized that there's more to the story, which I agree with. All right. Stewart says, with the big U Darvish acquisition, all I'm hearing around Southern California from arrogant Dodgers fans is how the Dodgers are absolutely 100% going to win the World Series. I'm trying to persuade my blue-goggled friends that betting their houses or significant others on the Dodgers to take it all is a bad idea. My rationale is based on this. It's baseball, it's a weird game, and stuff happens to even the best teams, which is why since the wild card was introduced, the team with the best record has won the World Series only six times. Can you gents come up with any statistical or matchup-related reasons why the Dodgers won't win it all? and save my friends from losing their money, marriages, and freedom. So actually, if you look up the the World Series odds, the Dodgers are at 100%. So no, they're right. <laughs> the, uh, the Dodgers are uh, they're a lock. So <laughs> shut it down. No, uh, obviously, this is, a, this is not a lock. The, the current Fangraph's odds, take them for what you will, but they have the Dodgers at roughly one out of five. They have the highest World Series odds because they're the best team in baseball, but they're at about 19% chances of winning the World Series. So you figure the reality is probably somewhere between 15 and 25%, something like that, where just from the perspective of someone who has a fondness for the Seattle Mariners, I'm always reminded of the 2001 Seattle Mariners who had tied for the most wins of all time in baseball history, and they won mm-hmm. one fewer game in the ALCS than they won the year before. But maybe the most, maybe the easiest way to think about it is that even a team like the Dodgers has to go through three rounds. They have to go through the division series, the championship series, and then the other championship series. And in each of those rounds, the Dodgers are likely to be the favorites. But in each of those rounds, the Dodgers will play a good team. So if you figure that their odds of winning any given series are 60%, which I don't know, you know what, even we let's just let's go crazy. Let's say 70%, which is definitely not true. Dodgers are not 70% favorites against any team they're going to meet in the playoffs. Let's just say that that that's true. Well, then they're going to be 70% favorites in the first first round, then you multiply that by 70% in the second round, you multiply that by 70% in the third round, and even then, you just have the Dodgers winning the World Series 34% of the time, which is obviously makes it twice as likely that they don't win the World Series. And if you figure something like, I don't know, 60% is more likely, then you just run through that math and you have the Dodgers win the World Series just 22% of the time. So it's pretty easy to see how this could go awry. And obviously something would have to go wrong in the field, but just based on the probability, there is no way, there is no reasonable way to argue that the Dodgers are more likely to win the World Series than not. It just It's just not true. Yep, I completely agree. You could argue that maybe they're a better playoff team than the postseason odds, World Series odds are giving them credit for. If you want to say that they will have a really great playoff rotation and a great playoff bullpen and maybe they'll 
get more benefit from that sort of thing than the typical team. Perhaps you could make that case, but even so, you can't get them up to more than, I don't know, 25, 30%. It's just too small a sample. So the arrogant Dodgers fans, odds are, will get their comeuppance in a a few months. (laughs) Not that I'm rooting for that to happen or anything. I'm enjoying the Dodgers winning a lot, but odds are that that will be the case. It's going to be all Clayton Kershaw's fault. (laughs) All right. Maybe last one from Harrison. I was just taking a look at Corey Kluber's Fangraphs page after his gem of a complete game, and here are his breaking ball usage rates from the past three seasons. 15.6%, 19.7%, 24.8%. This is great news from an aesthetic standpoint. I love Corey Kluber's breaking ball, but he also has career highs in Fangraph's FIP and Baseball Reference ERA+. I don't think the evidence is all in yet, since Kluber was awesome even before this development, but it's something to watch, and I think you have written about this, and Travis Sochik has written about this, so what do we know about Corey Kluber's breaking ball usage? So wait, what about career high in FIP implying career best or career worst? Because it's okay, definitely yeah, not I don't know. career worst, is career best. So what? what is the question here? That is Corey Kluber great? Because yeah, he's, he's great. I guess... How much of his success is related to the breaking ball usage or just how much should he be using his breaking ball? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I've written about this before because Corey Kluber, if when people have asked him about his uh, his breakout, he will, I think, frequently refer to this time in the minors. There was like a rain delay or something and he uh, he was supposed to start and then he wasn't starting. And so he was just kind of waiting, waiting out the rain. And then he started messing around with uh, a two seamer or a sinker and he just started throwing it like indoors or something off the field. Then he realized, oh. I like this pitch and he will just trace his his breakout back to learning how to throw a two seam fastball and learning how to command it. And indeed, when he showed up in the majors in 2012, he was throwing a sinker, at least according to Brooks Baseball, 42% of the time. It was his primary pitch and he uh, threw the sinker half the time the next year and the year after that. But what is interesting is that if you look at how the fastball has actually done for Kluber, it is uh, it's never had a positive run value. It never, not in 2011, not in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. I know the run values are not perfect because they don't really do a great job of factoring in the counts in which these pitches are thrown. However, Kluber historically has had a very, very good cutter and a very, very good curveball or slider, whatever you want to call it. It's his breaking ball. It's amazing. It's always been great. And I think that Kluber this year, he is throwing a career low rate of fastballs, I think at least since he became an established starting pitcher. And I think that's that's good. I think that he's kind of following the the Yankees pitcher path that Tom Verducci has written about and how the Yankees are issuing fastballs more than any team has on record. And, uh, it's, you know, we refer to the, the Rich Hill idea fairly often, the Lance McCullers idea. And I think that in Kluber's case, it's, it's also true that he can be better as he throws fewer fastballs. Obviously, he needs to throw a certain number of fastballs, but considering he's having an incredible season as he's throwing a breaking ball, I don't know if you combine the cutter and the curveball or, or whatever you want to do with it, but he is currently, I think for the, for the first time, yeah, he's throwing more combined cutters and curveballs than he is fastballs. And he's having a, an incredible season. I think this is not a coincidence. I think his breaking balls are are so good he could probably throw fastballs a third of the time and still be an ace mm-hmm. all right well i have other questions start here but we are tentatively planning perhaps to do an extra listener email show to make up for missing last week so we'll see if that happens i will save some material in case it does and we can end this episode here you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Tom Mully, Matthew Court, 
Daniel Watkins, Linus Marco, and Pete Eckert. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email to me and Jeff at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will be back very soon. I think it's time to leave.